I was shocked. Um, I was, you know, I was elated. But uh, I think that I think mostly the the shock is about being is being an independent producer. I mean, I make what I make in my closet, and I am a staff of one. So I, I didn't. It was very heartening. It was very heartening to see an independent producer um, chosen uh, because we are a separate tribe from what podcasting has become. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Erica Heilman heard about the death by suicide of 17-year-old Finn Rooney, she first recoiled. The story was too raw to tell. But Heilman, an independent podcaster and the creator of Rumble Strip, lives by the credo, good conversation takes its time. And so she patiently waited and continued talking with Rooney's mother. The story that took shape was not focused on suicide. It was about how the family and the larger Hardwick community grieved and healed together. The story that she crafted is called Finn and the Bell. It is an intimate and unforgettable portrait of love and loss. Last week, Erica Heilman won a Peabody Award for the podcast, the highest award in broadcast journalism. Heilman's award is notable because she is an independent producer who, as she likes to say, makes podcasts in her closet. Rumblestrip, which she founded in 2013, is a one-woman operation. That's not the typical profile of her fellow Peabody winners, who include Terry Gross, the longtime host of NPR's Fresh Air, former CBS anchorman Dan Rather, the New York Times, and other well-known media figures and institutions. It's not the first time Heilman has run with the big dogs. Rumblestrip was named the number one podcast by The Atlantic magazine, ahead of podcasts produced by, among others, The Washington Post and The New Yorker magazine. Heilman is a self-taught podcaster. She was born in Vermont, but left to study musical theater at the University of Michigan, she then landed a job at PBS's McNeil Lehrer News Hour and continued to work as various freelance gigs as a television producer. That wasn't paying the bills, so the single mom moved back to Vermont and took a job as a private investigator. She began producing her distinctive rumble strip podcasts on the side, relying on listener donations to support it. Rumblestrip now airs monthly on Vermont Public Radio and in longer form at rumblestripvermont.com. The Peabody Award says, quote, Heilman's important work serves as a reminder of what we stand to lose with the ongoing crisis in local news. Local media institutions aren't just responsible for holding the powerful accountable and shedding light on injustice. They're also there to simply document life around them, to act as the institutional memory for the people they served. They reflect communities back to themselves, forging the shared bond felt with each other through joys as much as tragedies. For its tender treatment of a community in grief, and for embodying the power of local storytelling, Finn and the Bell is awarded a Peabody. Close quote. Here is an excerpt from Finn and the Bell. Finn had this glove that was given to him and during the game it, the strings would break and we'd restring it and 
we're like try to give him a glove and he's like coach this is the glove and he had these cleats that were duct taped up there's a new pair of cleats that were given to him. he never had metal cleats and at this level they can wear metal and then I see him at practice he's wearing his old duct tape cleats up and I'm like Finn you got a new set of cleats coach those are for games only we, I wear those for games so then after every game, he'd take them off and wipe them down and put them back in the box. We brought some teams in New England, and we represented Vermont, and the coaches from the other team would come up to me and say, who's that center field? If I had nine players like that. So even coaches that never coached them could see his work ethic and his love for the game. Lyle and Fenwood, every day for hours, that was the sound of summer was like the, the sound of a ball getting into a glove. Come on, Lyle, like, let's go outside and... I find baseballs in the yard, you know, in the field all the time still. Because before we had the sheep, the grass would just get too big and they'd lose them. The, the ball, that sound... I give just about anything in the world to hear that. Yeah. Erica Heilman is used to asking the questions. I began my conversation with her by asking how it felt to have the tables turned and be interviewed herself. It makes me feel sympathetic for the people I interview. I mean, it's it's like singing into the mirror into a hairbrush. It's hard. It's hard to be interviewed. But I'm having a good time. Don't get me wrong. So let's um, begin in the middle or at the end or wherever winning a Peabody Award, the highest award in broadcasting, is uh, in your career. What was your reaction to learning the news that Finn and the Bell won the highest award that your colleagues give? I was shocked. Um, I was, you know, I was elated. But uh, I think that I think mostly the the shock is about being an, is being an independent producer. I mean, I make what I make in my closet, and I am a staff of one. So I, I didn't. It was very heartening. It was very heartening to see an independent producer um, chosen uh, because. We are a separate tribe from what podcasting has become. I mean, I would think the origin story of podcasting is people making stories for the love of it in in their, you know, living rooms and basements, which I think is a beautiful origin story. And actually, podcasting has changed the soundscape of radio today. You know, radio, all that you hear on public radio has been massively impacted by the the 
you know, experimentation that's been happening in podcasting. But it's been a pretty fast trajectory, this genre, and it has, I think a lot of the independent podcasts have are getting a little bit lost in the in the tsunami of celebrity produced podcasts and um, committee produced podcasts, and they're all there's not it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that there's a very unique um, history to independent produced podcasts, and they have a, a problematic, idiosyncratic, um, singular sound that you cannot make with a boardroom full of people. Uh, it just sounds different, and I was really excited to see. Um, one recognized, and I was extremely happy that it was the Finn story. I want to talk about that for a minute and really underscore the point you're making about what it means to be independent. Last year, or two years ago, the Atlantic magazine named uh, Rumble Strip your creation, and one of the shows that you did called Our Show, a pandemic show, and we'll talk about that in a bit, as the number one podcast in America. And I just what interested me uh, for those of us in Vermont who know and love your work, we thought, oh, yeah, well, sure, of course she's number one. But then you look at who's number two through 50. It's podcasts from The Washington Post, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Reveal. And when people listen to those podcasts at the end, it takes them like 30 seconds to go through the cast of thousands who produce these things, the endless resources that a Washington Post has to create magnificent podcasts. Talk about the back end of Rumble Strip and how long it takes you to go through your credits. Credits are pretty straightforward in my world. Yeah. They're pretty pretty short. They're I mean you you know, I think sometimes on those lists is even this American Life and that's not even a podcast. It's a radio show. So the word has become a very flex has, the definition seems very flexible now. Um though I mean, the the podcasts that I listen to all of them, the Washington Post and the Times and all of the podcasts that they put out, I, I love them. Um, and they are podcasts because they are produced for that format. But again, I associate the word with uh, the its eccentric beginnings. Um, it was before there was any money for podcasts. There was no, you know, we weren't asking, you know, this was not a career move making this show. Um I mean, you literally talk about making Rumble Strip in your closet. So explain what you mean like that. Are you actually in a closet? I have a really nice large closet, and it is a closet. It is the best spot in my house to record narration. So, you know, most of what I'm doing is out in the field interviewing people and then uh, and editing, which I can do anywhere in the house. But when it comes to recording narration, I do that in my closet, which, I mean— I've been doing this long enough that I could probably do better. I mean, I could probably figure out kind of a sound uh, proof box in my office, but I have yet to. But my closet, you know, works pretty good. Take us into your process with Finn and the Bell, which is, we're going to link to it on this podcast. It is literally breathtaking to listen to. It's like a prayer almost, um, honoring the life of this young man, Finn Rooney, who took his own life. Um, how did this story come to you and how did you approach it? Because it's such a sensitive and difficult topic to address. It started in 
the parking lot of the East Hardwick Grange Hall. The I was working on a story um, about a free soup event that Rose Friedman was producing, which was just what it is. People showed up and got soup and left. And Tara Reese, Finn's mother, was volunteering the night that I was there. And she, uh, after I'd done recording, I she approached me at my car and said, she introduced herself and told me that her son had killed himself about a year before and that she felt that there was something in the way that the town reacted that was worthy of looking at. And she also said, you know, this is really not like me to approach a stranger. And in fact, it's true. She's, it was nothing like her. But I, I said, well, let's get together and talk about it. And we we got together and did a very, very long interview that was full of a extreme anguish. It was a very, it was like a three or four hour interview, a very long conversation that was too raw to consider making a story of. And also, I mean, I was asking myself, like, what the hell am I doing? What am I, I'm not a therapist and I'm not, is this even ethical to be having this kind of conversation? And, but much of what happens at the end of that story happened in that very first meeting with her. And it was, she, interestingly, there, there's, a, there's a moment in the story when she talks about the moments directly after Finn's death. And she started that story by saying that she, she was almost embarrassed to tell the story because she, she felt it wouldn't be, um, that, that it, it wouldn't translate, like how there, there is a, a kind of um, sublime quality to what happens to her right then that's, that is um, hard to reconcile with what's just happened. But when she told me the story, it just, it was like a penny dropping down and down and all the way down. I did understand what it was that she was saying, and it was not... It, it was an absolutely perfect and horrible but perfect culmination of what had just happened. And so I did know in that conversation that there was, that A, she was extraordinary, the story was extraordinary, but I didn't know what to, to do with it. So we agreed to wait, and then months went by, and she she sort of off we stayed in touch, and she offhandedly told me that that there was this Bell project, that, which was a, a project that Finn had initiated before he died, and, um, y- y- you know, a, a bell that was sort of a community bell. And he loved this idea that the bell would ring for community events, and, but he, bef- he took his own life before that, that resolved or before it came true. So the community took this up, and then I thought, this is a time when I think we could climb back into this story because there's a different kind of organizing principle and it also will bring the town into the story in a way that that will augment it and make it it just seemed like the right time so we started in then what was the most challenging part of telling that story and as you say at the outset it's not a story about suicide so what is it a story about you know, it's funny. I 
I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm terrible at describing what my own show is, is about. You know, when people say, what's Rumble's trip? And I have no, I'm not very good at answering it. But also when, you, when somebody says, what's the show about? I'm not very good at that either. And I'm also really reticent about it because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to tell anybody else what the story's about for them. I would say that it's more about, it's about this person, Finn Rooney, and hopefully it captures some of the his the spirit of who he was and also the the terrifying and confusing and beautiful reaction from the community how does this small town and the small towns nearby react to something so unspeakable and again i think it's about this it's very 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 simple which is we're we're really good at kindness we're we're, we love is really our second nature. It's 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 what we do best, but we don't remember that a lot of the time. It's not. This isn't a lofty thing I'm saying. It's like the simplest thing I could say. It's it's an exchange between strangers at a grocery store. It's it's you know leaving soup on the stoop after somebody has suffered a horrible loss. These are such simple human acts, and we forget about that second nature much of the time and I think in at least in some measure the story is about that it's about uh, what we can be what we are at the the best of times and sometimes it takes the worst of times to to remember you know how simple it is you talk about love being at the center of this story and many of the stories you tell um it reminds me of um the founder of um, uh, D- Dave Isay, who does the uh, stories on uh, NPR. I'm blanking on the name Story, of the StoryCorps. Uh, listening is an act of love, um, he talks about. Um, talk about the role of love in your work. You know, I fall in love with everybody that I interview. And that's not, I mean, I, I, all, all, of, all of, that's the job, I think, is to climb in to somebody and it's also very selfish because I know that they know something that if I knew it, I could get through my day better. And so it's also that. It's a hungry, selfish sort of desire to figure out how, do, you know, you know something singular that no one else knows. What is that thing? Um, I mean, I think if I had to describe what the goal of the show is, it's that you be invited into the life of someone else and recognize that they're a whole lot more like you than you thought. Um, and that you recognize, you know, you hear somebody's story, you know, it's this happened and that happened and this happened and here's where I am, you know? And if you go back and you hear all that, all those parts, then it makes sense where somebody is. And so even if it's somebody deeply unlike yourself, if you can tease, you know, follow that string you say, well, of course, and you can recognize how somebody, you know, the humanity of another person. Um, that's super fun. It's fun to do and it's fun to listen to, I think. You, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Atlantic Magazine named Rumble Strip um, the number one podcast of 2020. And what they were awarding you for was a show you did during the pandemic uh, called Our Show. Uh, so, Talk about, uh, and, and this is 
an almost random collection of people that you reached out to to provide you with sound, with audio of what was going on in their lives during lockdown. Um, when the pandemic hit, when you were locked down, you were essentially, you must have feared you were being shut out of your livelihood because what you do is connect with people in person. Um, how did you go from feeling like this would be a calamity to an opportunity? Well, I didn't. It was certainly not that. The, I mean, I didn't see, it wasn't, I didn't see an opportunity. Like most things that I do for this show, I in, backed into it, fell into it. The It was a, I didn't, no, I didn't know that it would work. In fact, I sort of imagined it might not. People were busy and confused and worried. But I, the only thing I could think to do was to find a way to, you know, we were all, for that very short time during the pandemic, it wasn't very long, but when the whole world was on lockdown together, it's really at the beginning when people in Frickin' Tasmania were locked down at the same, you know, and, and Walcott, we were all locked down. And so I thought, we all are so lonely, but we're all so weirdly together in this disaster together. How do we, how do we find each other? And we all own these things, these cell phones. It's easy to, to talk into them. And so I just put out a, put out a pitch to my list. I also feel like my listeners or the people who have listened to the show and have really seen me through dumb failures and successes and why was she doing that and but we're going to hang with her. I feel very close to my audience. I feel that it's a community and they matter. They're people who matter a lot to me and they're all over the world. So I also thought, well, this will be interesting to turn the listeners into the show. So I did, and they it, they flooded me with the most amazing tape, just incredible stories from their closets and their and their their disastrous tantrum tantruming children, and you know they were recording birds, and it was unbelievable what I got. And so then I had this there was this pressure to do justice by it, right? To really to capture how it was more than the sum of its parts, all of these voices. Um, and I, it was huge fun to make those shows. And after seven shows, it was over, that we were done. It was, you know, I'd said to the listeners, I'll do this for as long as you want, as long as you want to send me tape. And after about seven shows, there was a sort of natural ebbing. And I thought, okay, we're, we're, we're done. And it, it finished, its, it ran its course. It was beautiful. Is there one story that sticks out in your mind? Um. One of my, the guy who's become a dear friend of mine, Ralph from Wolcott, could not figure out how to do a recording on his phone. He called me, we, were, we talked it through. I was just like, okay, now you see the red circle? Okay, to hit that. Couldn't happen, wasn't going to happen. I said, look, man, I am going to come to your barn and we I will stay so far I'm going to stay you're barely going to be able to see me but so I went over to his house and and he told me the most he's a he's a strong and really good Christian and he was talking to me about how you can't see God we're talking about the pandemic about the virus and that you can't see God, but you know God is there, and you, and you can't see the pandemic, but you know it's there. And then he was talking about how 
every day he was trying to remember to call someone and surprise them just just to reach out to them in this really strange time to ask how they were doing and I, it's, I can't it's maybe more of a like it's a tonal thing right why I love him so much and why I loved that tape so much but it was full of love and um and also hearing Ralph up against Stan in Tasmania, like what could be better, right? Well, we're going to go to a clip of Ralph now telling his story. I'm 67. Lord willing, I'll be 68 in June if I make it. I've gone through my Rolodex on my phone and I want to make it a thing that I call at least one person I get in there every day you know just to check on them and to talk I met a met a guy last year getting parts for the tractor and out of the blue uh, I see his name on the phone I think it was the Lord when I come to put the phone in my pocket one of them things and the static electricity made it click and put his number in my phone and it started dialing it and I I shut it off and then I got thinking about it, thinking about it and I said, you know, I'm going to call him, you know, see how he's doing, how his family's doing. He lives in Fairfax and and, uh, we had a nice chat and he thanked me. He said, you know, of all the customers I got, you're the one that thought of me personally, you know, take a moment and call, see how he's doing. I believe in the Lord just like I believe in the virus. You can't see the Lord, but you know he's there. And you can't see the virus, but you can see the effects, just like you can't see the wind. Erica, some people, uh, their life story follows a very linear and predictable course. They go to college, they go to medical school or law school, they become a doctor or a lawyer, they do that for 50 years and they retire. You haven't really followed a script like that, so take us on your journey and how you got to where you are today. Uh, No, not, not linear. I went to school and I majored in musical theater, so I was, I had to, I had to be proficient in tap dance in order to graduate. I was never very good. I tapped my way into sort of the back of all of the performances. So I did that, and then I went to Chicago and started an experimental theater company with uh, several people. So uh, so I did that, and then I moved back to Vermont, and I milked cows for a while, and then I traveled to Southeast Asia and to South Africa, and then I came back and moved to New York and worked at McNeil Air News Hour as a, just a peon there. When, and then I, after that, I did documentary television. I was an associate producer and a field producer for many years and then also worked in the world of um, online website. You know, it was this sort of the time of the website boom, right, the Internet boom. So I was work as a, worked as a managing editor for a website there for a while. And then I came back to Vermont, and I didn't know what to do. And I taught myself how to make radio because I could do it because it's you could afford to do that alone. But I became a private investigator and worked for uh, Susan Randall, who's the preeminent pr- 
private investigator here in Vermont. And, uh, you know, I loved being a PI because, again, you have an excuse to knock on a door at the end of that road, right? You can do that, and then you have these really intense conversations with people um, that are but I wasn't a, I was I was cre- I was building stories to give to a lawyer to build a case right so I couldn't I missed making stories and so around that time um, when it became possible to start your own show that's what I did how did being a private investigator in how does that inform what you do now and I have to think that a lot of times when you showed up at those doors you were looking for information that people did not want to give you. That's a really interesting topic, I think, because you do have to, when I am knocking on the door, the, the only thing that I feel or, and, or want to be feeling is when somebody opens the door, I'm on that person's side. I, I'm deeply curious and interested in the person who's on the other side of the door. That's the operating principle. The person is the expert, right? Whoever it is I'm talking to is an expert on the, the you know, the, 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 they, certainly they know more about the case than I do and the people at hand or the people involved, but they also know everything about themselves, and I'm just as interested in that. It's complicated because on some level, in order to be good at it, you have to make contact with people, right? You have to gain their trust or at least their curiosity enough to have a conversation, but should they be talking to me? Not always. And then I do say you don't have to talk to me because I don't. But it felt a little bit complicated because I both, I wanted to leave the house where I was doing an interview with the person feeling better than when I came. That was just something I wanted. I, I am confused. And maybe it reflects that I don't understand what a private investigator does. Right. But I think of a private investigator as trying to ferret out information yes. that someone's trying to hide. You are not their friend, and this is adversarial. It, am I wrong? No. Well, it's not that it, the person who I'm talking to is not necessarily trying to hide something. You know, that this is, could be a neighbor. It could be a cousin. It could be a uncle. They may not be um, central to the story. They're just the the, the context. So I'm filling in the context of what happened. So my job is to give, is to fill out stories for attorneys so that they can make their case. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm overthinking this or over explaining this to you. The point is that it's complicated. I'm not there to tell a story like I am with Rumble Strip. I'm there to help somebody build a case. But I want, um, I don't want to feel like I'm getting something over on anybody. I never wanted to feel that way. So I was just, I also knew that in order to be successful, I had to actually successfully make contact with with the other human inside the door. And that means having real, genuine human contact with somebody who is deeply unlike myself, probably. And that's interesting, sometimes frightening, but always wicked human. So take us from being a private investigator, going down these lonely roads and finding story, finding out the backstory of things, to evolving into what you do now. And y- these days, it's called a podcaster. You didn't call yourself a podcaster at the beginning. I, I think of you more as a as an artist, a sound artist. Uh, but how do you how did you think of yourself when you began working with sound? I try never to call myself a podcaster. 
because it's an awful word. And the word podcast is pretty awful, I think. We just really screwed up when we named this thing in the beginning. I thought of myself as a person who made a podcast in the beginning. That was the word we used. I wish we had ditched that word somewhere along the way, but that's how I think of myself as as an independent podcast producer Uh, and radio producer too. Um, But yeah, independent podcast producer. When did you begin that? And how did you teach yourself the skills of working with sound? And that's certainly to somebody listening to your podcast, the sound, the interplay, the connections is so much a part of the magic of of rumble strip it's really just experimenting i mean in terms of learning how to if you're talking about sound design and editing and just getting better at that it's just time 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 and time and desire and repetition my my capacity as an editor and a interviewer i hope has improved or I hope I've gotten better at it um, at what I at what I do um, I'm still afraid of it always the I mean I've never been to an interview where I didn't have sweaty palms and I why what are you afraid of because it matters because it the stakes are high because I'm about to put a mic in someone's face and ask them questions about themselves so I better I better do it right and I'm trying to get to some third place with the person who I'm talking with. I'm trying to, first of all, uh, I'm trying to get them to, to a place where they're surprised, where they may think of something they, or realize something that they didn't know about themselves. There is a, you know, that what is happening between us right now, there are two things happening. There's content, like I'm telling you stuff and you're asking me stuff. But there's also the dynamic between us. It's what's happening between us, you know, like when you're at a party and you're like, why do you say it like that? Or um, why did she look over there? You know, there's dynamic between people and there's content. And people, we can hear all of that in audio. We can hear all of it. And the, con- the tone of what's happening, the dynamic, is half as interesting or is, is 50% of what's interesting to me about audio is that it's, it's as much about sound and tone uh, and gesture in what people are talking about as it is about what gets said. So what was the... I, I'm sorry, I'm not answering your question at all. No, you're answering my question. You know, when I contacted you to do this interview, you offered to meet me in my car to do the interview, which struck me as an incredibly kind of intimate space to share with somebody that you're telling a story with talk about your process and you said that you often interview people in your car yeah oh I love uh, car interviews are the best because when if we're you know so I interviewed this this absolutely brilliant poet called Garrett Kaiser genius beautiful human but he's 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 deeply intimidating to me so I asked him if we could if he would be willing to do the interview in the car. Because when you're sitting in a car with somebody, you're looking in the same direction. You're not looking at each other. So you're both talking to each other, but you're also talking to yourself in the way that one does in the car. You're Tonally, it's very different. You know, you know, we all know with our family members, or particularly our kids, our best conversations happen in the car. But 100%. My sister-in-law told me that secret when my kids were young that difficult conversations just do them in the car you don't have to look at each other <laughs> right. 
Right. And, but there, it's funny because it's like they're, so in a way that would imply that they're less intimate, but in fact, they're kind of more intimate because you are, you're in this little moving world together, like you're in a pod, but you also have, so it's intimate, but you're also, you have some privacy because you're looking, you're not looking at each other. So cars are great places for interviews. They're really hard to edit though, because the tires, tire sounds change constantly. You're actually driving when you do those interviews? Most, yeah, usually I'm driving, but sometimes I'm just sitting in the car. But yeah, usually I'm driving. So the guest is driving, I'm in the passenger seat. So when I'm driving in the Northeast Kingdom and I see you coming in the opposite direction, I should give you a wide berth because what looks like a car and driver are not. (laughs) Well, no, because the guest is driving. I am not driving. So, and we'd like to think the guest is totally focused. One of the things I find most compelling in your work is your vulnerability. You bear yourself uh, to your audience. You casually talk about dealing with seasonal depression, your fears about turning 50. Um, You record yourself singing your favorite song, Total Eclipse of the Sun, and the performance is heartfelt and out of tune. And you put that out to the world. Um, Talk about yourself as a character in your podcast and that ability to make yourself that vulnerable. Well, let's just be really clear. It's Total Eclipse of the Heart. It's really important that we get that right because it is my favorite song. And so, anyway, for the record. Uh, um, could, Could you just sing the refrain? We all know it. We all know the song. I'm not going to say, and I, um, every now and then I get a little bit, everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. Even if you out there, you say you don't love it. I know you love it. You just do. (laughs) That was beautifully performed. You definitely have me wanting to hear the rest of it. (laughs) Good. Good. But talk about yourself as a character in your stories. That, I mean, I actually mostly try to remove myself from stories or, or let people, I, I try to cut myself out as much as I can, but it still feels like some kind of weird diary, even if I'm not in it. It still feels like an account of um, something that happened to me, right? So if you hear Forrest Foster, who, who's a farmer in, in, in Hardwick. I'm not in a lot of the show, but it feels really, really personal. I am in, I am in to- the Total Eclipse of the Heart show. It was the Turning 50 show, and that was explicitly all about me. So that was, but I'd like to think that that, well, it's a bit of a departure from what I usually do. I think you're in your shows more than you're acknowledging in a really good way, because when you express your vulnerability, the fact that you're waiting for your son in the Penny's parking lot while he's getting a haircut and, you know, how you have, you know, conversations you have with your son, your your vulnerability enables your subject to be vulnerable. Do you think of it that way? Yeah, I do. I think that the when I'm doing interviews, yeah, I give, I in an interview, I give only as much as is useful for them to continue a train of thought or to to go where they are going. So 
um, that could be uh, vulnerable, but it's quick. You know, it's not, I'm not going, in other words, I don't take a long departure into my own story when I'm doing an interview because I just don't feel like that's what I'm doing. But I'm not, I guess I'm not afraid to be in, like back to that dynamic between me and the other person. To me, the story is, is at least in part in some of the shows about that developing relationship between me and that person. So that familiarity or that sort of growing familiarity is evident in the shows. How do you know when you begin a story, how do you know when you finished it? Do you mean when I'm editing? I mean when you're in the process of it. Um, You know, one can keep going forever. There's always another interview and another conversation. Um, How do you know when you've gotten to the heart of the story in the way that you feel is the heart? Well, sometimes you just stop. Sometimes you just say, okay, let's move on. But I think making stuff is a, is is kind of like 80% awful, difficult, unpleasant. And then there's like 20% at the end that's kind of fun and where you you lose time. Or so in an edit process, right, where you're sitting for a billion hours looking at a computer, um, 80% is confusion. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know who wants to listen to this and then but then you you go down to some other layer where you're just a, in a state of absorption and that's a very pleasant state and anybody who's made a birdhouse or made anything who reaches that level of, of absorption knows what that is it's a wonderful just where you're just what you're doing and I feel as though when that happens I usually know it's nearly done. And then after that is polish. But when, I've, when, when, you, when, when I'm in that kind of state of absorption, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know what this is now. And that chatter has stopped. Uh, You've described how um, you don't particularly like making stories about politics and the political divisions and fights that were all happening. Um, why is that? That's interesting because I feel that in some way all of the shows are about that, particularly the Finn show, not in an explicit way, but uh, again, I think that it's it's about, I mean, this isn't about politics expressly, but it's about the the lowest common denominator behavior that we are all indulging in using politics as a kind of rationale for that bad behavior and that actually we're a lot better, the world is a lot funner, and we're actually a lot happier when we um, are curious about each other, when we acknowledge each other, when we are kind to each other. I, I, I don't, I'm not proselytizing. It's not, I'm not telling anybody to be nice. But I think that that's, at least in some measure, what that show is about. And I think that all again, all of the shows are about, many of the shows are about people deeply unlike me. And so hopefully one of the messages that people can get is that everybody that you see in the grocery store uh, is not as different from you as you thought. And um, whatever different feelings they have about politics 
that's not reason enough to, I mean, you're, there's, some, there's, a, there's a floor under that that's a lot more interesting where you share a lot more in common than not. So in a way, I think these shows are, I guess, political in that respect. What are you proudest of in the work that you do? I don't know about the mo. I, I, that, I don't know. One, okay, I'll think of a thing that I'm proud of. I always want people I've interviewed. I want to leave them feeling bigger or, or seen. And my hope is that... Um, what I think is that in my experience with people I've talked with is that they have felt seen, translated, and that makes me very happy. And I all, it makes me very happy to introduce uh, Vermonters to each other um, who, you know, you might never meet in a, in a way that is where you can you sort of see yourself in that person. That if I, if I achieve that, I feel I've done something may perhaps useful. Well, that's a good note to end on. Erica Heilman, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks a lot for having me. 